Welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today, uh, it's International Women's Day. So, well, it won't be International Women's Day when we release this podcast, but we're recording it on International Women's Day. And so we thought there was no better time than to talk about the role that the women in The Wire play. Yes, women of The Wire. Women of The Wire. So often in literature, women are put in kind of this dichotomy, right? They're either Madonna whore or their giver of power or sucker of power. Um, and it's all, it's, I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to biblical roots. Yeah. For example, well, and I see a lot of this in House of Cards as well. Kelly, you don't watch House of Cards, but um, the women that have sex in House of Cards are very much, they're really put in this place of like being a temptress or a whore and they don't have power. Whereas women like Claire Underwood, we never see having sex uh, until now later in the seasons. But uh, at that time, she has this very high position of power. So I think that that's kind of an interesting thing. And then of course, that whole uh, women as power givers or power takers um, goes to me back to Samson and Delilah, which is where Samson has all this power and then when he meets Delilah, she cuts off his hair. He loses his power. Oh, well, and, I didn't know that story. Yeah, and then he's, he becomes basically a slave. So we're talking about some, some literature that's a tale as old as time, really. So even though we often see dichotomies of how women are portrayed in literature, I think um, today what we're going to do is introduce a third option. So women that fit one of three different roles. So what we see happening in The Wire is women as saviors. Uh, we have a couple examples of that. Also women as corruptors. And then the third option, which is sort of outside that dichotomy, would be absent women. And there are some women that we never see in The Wire that I think the fact that they're absent is pretty critical as well. Mm-hmm. So let's start with women as saviors. Okay. So women as saviors, I think for sure McNulty, I know we've talked a lot about McNulty, but he does definitely see women as uh, an opportunity to be saved, I think, or save him from himself in The Wire. I mean, when he's trying to get back with Elena, we know that he's making a sort of concerted effort to be quote-unquote good again. Uh, And then, of course, when he gets with Beatty. Yeah, I think... Beatty, even more so than Elena, represents a savior to McNulty, especially because we see him turning down her invitation at first to Mm. come in and have a beer with him. Um, It's almost like she's so idealized and so much a possible savior that he's afraid of ruining it. So he kind of starts by putting her on... A pedestal. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that scene where he goes to her house uh, after they've gone out for sort of their first colleague beer together. Yeah. It's just her and him. And uh, when, uh, when they're getting ready to go out, he says, she says, just one beer or else I get sleepy. And then he says, right, me too. And Lester kind of gives him this look. Like, yeah, what are you funny. talking about? Anyway, so then he, they go out for a beer. They have a good chat about why they're single. McNulty lies. Then they go to her house, and she offers him a beer, and it seems like he's going to stay. He, she goes to put her kids to bed, and he 
he walks around her house. Yeah, and he sees that she's got these drawings of her kids on the fridge, and it's just, it's too good for McNulty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, too pure. Too pure. So, and at that point, he leaves. Right. And, and then we know that when he's ready to try to be good again, which is near the episode, the end of episode, or sorry, season three. Three. He runs into who he thinks is BD, chases her down. But of and then it's not her. Yeah, and then when he does go to meet her kids, that's when he says, okay. And so we sort of see, I guess, him by trying to start by meeting her kids, he is really, that's his move to show that he's serious right off the bat. Yes. And that's a signifier to us as the audience that this is something that's going to be real to McNulty. It's not going to just be another one-night stand. Mm-hmm. It's which, not like it is with Ronnie. Right, and it, I guess it could have been a one-night stand if it was back in the original, like, in season two, two when he goes there. Yeah. Another savior woman in The Wire is Chardine. Chardine, as we talked about in an early episode of this podcast, represents all the good that D'Angelo feels like he can't attain, which mm-hmm. is outside the life of the game and represented by the county. That's right. So... It's interesting because Chardine, as an exotic dancer, as a stripper, I think would usually be put to this sort of temptress or whore trope. And there is a, a moment where D'Angelo says, I ain't no John, and she says, well, good, because I ain't no whore. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, even though she's put in this like role, we know that she's good. And the other thing that's making me think about this is um, when Lester and Kima are looking at girls from one of Avon's clubs to try to turn, and Lester asks Kima, if you were going to try to turn one of these girls, who would you turn? And she picks Chardine from the lineup. And then Lester says, why? And she says, I don't know. She just, she just looks good. Mm-hmm. And she does end up helping them. And then develops this friendship or kinship with Lester. And when Lester gives her some guidance and some opportunities, Chardine ends up becoming a nurse. Mm-hmm. Which is like an actual savior, you know, it's quite, quite literally yeah. a, a saving uh, job. But she couldn't save D'Angelo. No, she couldn't save D'Angelo. The other thing that I think is really interesting about Chardine is that she's really um, contrasted with Darnett as, as far as D'Angelo's girlfriends go. And we can talk about, I think, Darnett a little bit as a corrupter, and we'll talk about that in a second. But you made a really good point that she doesn't save D, just like BD ultimately doesn't save McNulty. Yeah, so there is something being said there about the inability of women to save any of these men. You know, they kind of have to save themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, on the other hand, women as corruptors in The Wire tend to be very successful in their goals. Yeah, women as corruptors. There's a few that stand out, and I think since we've just been talking about D'Angelo, we'll start there. Um, you mentioned Darnett as one corruptive force. Yeah, so I think when I think about um, Darnett, I always go back to that scene in the restaurant, which we talked about last week, where... You know, it's very obvious D'Angelo isn't comfortable with being in the game. And when they're in this restaurant, you know, he's asking her, 
like if people know what he's all about and she's like whatever you have money and then as they go further and sort of try to get back together after Chardine leaves D'Angelo uh, and he even says this to Chardine when she asks him are you friends with um, your baby mama he says oh you know she wants the house she wants the car she wants a bedroom set she wants this and that and then you know, later on we do see her. She wants the new couch and she needs, she says there's not enough space and if they're going to be a real family and they need proper furniture. And, you know, she's really seen as this, she's portrayed as this very greedy character. Yeah, she just wants all these material goods, which makes D'Angelo feel like he has to stay in the game to make money for her. Yeah, exactly. So this makes a good transition to another corruptive woman that does something similar, and that is Naaman's mother. Mm-hmm. After Weebay ends up in prison, Naaman's mother doesn't really have the, um, the economic means that she had from Weebay being in the game. And her son, Weebay's son, uh, kind of starts to take over that provider role a little bit. Right, and Naaman is such a conflicted character. At the beginning of season four, you know, we see him as kind of a bully. Like, he's definitely unkind to Dookie, for one. Yeah, he puts on this tough guy persona. Yeah, his mother's also unkind to Dookie. Mm-hmm. But Naaman doesn't have a real knack for the game. The other little kid plays him on his package. Oh, yeah, uh, Kennard. Yeah, and he doesn't even want to be on the corner you know he wants to be out with hanging around his friends and then Naaman's mother says to Weebe when they go on the visit you know talk to your son he's not even out on the corner mm-hmm. yeah and I mean he even just as much as that he wants to keep his ponytail you know he doesn't even want to cut his hair for the game yeah um so and I think as season four progresses we see Naaman have a, a real crisis of identity when Kennard rips him off on the package. Um, Michael starts, I don't know, probably not emasculating, I guess isn't the word, but like, you know, being much more tough than him. And he starts to feel threatened, I think, in his position of the group where he was supposed to be the gangster, like, street guy. Mm-hmm. But his mother, this whole time, well, Bodhi calls her the dragon lady because she won't take no for an answer. And so every time... Naaman says he doesn't want to do something. She goes out and does it for him. Yeah, and there's a moment when she says to Naaman, your dad's gone now. You have to step up. You have to be the man of the house. Mm -hmm. Especially when Brianna Barksdale says to Naaman's mother, there's no more money coming. Weebay did a good thing taking the fall, but we're done sending money to the family now. Yeah. And that instigates a very intense fight between Naaman and his mom that we have a clip of. Okay, so let's listen to that. What you mean Kanad took the stash? And he's still walking around? I'm gonna talk to him, Ma. Make sure this never happened again. Look at me, boy. Kanad got to feel some pain for what he did. He got to. I don't... You don't what, motherfucker? This how you pay me back for all the love I show? Shit. I've been kept you in Nike since you were in diapers. I'm trying. You trying, huh? That's what you gonna tell your father the next time you see him? That you trying? Or you gonna tell him what you done? What he done got him locked up. That's right. 
Weebay walked in Jessup a man, and he gonna walk out one. But you out here, weighing his name, acting a bitch. Oh, look at you, crying now. Fuck you think you going? Get your ass back here, I ain't done talking to you. That's like one of the hardest scenes to watch, I think. It's horrible, especially because she is basically guilting him, saying, I've had you in Nikes since you were in diapers. Like, yeah. trying to buy his loyalty to the game. And she does that throughout. I think that's one of the, and the interesting thing, and I think this is a good segue to the next uh, p- woman as a corruptor that we're going to talk about. But, you know, Naven's mom is always trying to bribe him with things like she she buys all of his school clothes Mm -hmm. for him and he's super pumped about that um but the other woman is a corruptor and it's another mom is of course d'angelo's mother yeah d'angelo's mother brianna barksdale avon's sister Mm -hmm. now she though she doesn't corrupt d'angelo with things she bribes him and manipulates him with love and family and your people right with the promise of love not really yeah not a real love yeah exactly um now it's interesting well let's listen to that uh scene where she convinces d'angelo to take the time when he's ready to flip okay let's listen to it so they got you all the way out here huh started out thinking you was in jersey you were in Jersey. I figure they still got you down in Central Booking. All the way out here. You send a message, though. Yeah, well, a message needs sending. How y'all even find me? Ain't no one gonna keep a mother from her son, right? You know, you always talking family. Family is the heart, he say. Well, I'm family, ain't I? Well, what about me for once? It ain't right. What's right? Hmm? You like for him to step up? Take all the weight and let you walk? Because he will. You know he will. But if he got to go away, that mean you got to step up and fill his shoes. You ready for that? <sighs> Ma, you know I ain't. I ain't ready, and I ain't never gonna be ready for this game. D, come on. Look, they giving me a chance to walk away, to start again someplace else. And what you giving them? He messed up, Dave. He knows it. Now, if you want to get even with him, you can. But you hurt him. You hurt this whole family. All of us. Me and Trina and the cousins. And Donnett, too. And your baby. Your own baby boy. This right here is part of the game, D. And without the game, this whole family would be down in the fucking terrace living off scraps. Shit, we probably wouldn't even be a family. Start over, huh? How the fuck you gonna start over without your peoples? 
without your own child even. You ain't got family in this world. What the hell you got? So what's really sad about that clip is that she is guilting him with his own son's love and says, how can you do that to your own son? And then even saying things like, if, if you're not in prison, then you have to fill Yvonne's shoes. So basically not even giving him a chance to get out of the game. Yeah. And just like Naaman's, D'Angelo doesn't want to be in the game. And he even says that to her. He says, I'm not ever going to be cut out for this game. Yeah. And, and she's like, well... Without it, we'd be in the terrace fighting for scraps. Well, and the other thing she says is that, do you want him to step up and take the years for you? He'll do it, which I think makes D'Angelo feel bad because it's like, oh, if Avon would do it for you, why wouldn't you do it for him? Yeah, exactly. The interesting thing uh, in the parallel between the two mothers is that though they are both corruptors, I would say that Naaman's mom, uh, what's her name? Did you say? Uh, Delonda. Delonda. Uh, she is one of probably the most hated characters in the history of the show. Yeah, she's awful. And even just a quick Google of Naaman's mom, you know, you get all these yeah. forums and subreddits about how awful she is. And yet with D'Angelo's mom, I don't think there's that same level of hate. And no. I wonder if it's because uh, we see we occasionally see the softer side of D'Angelo's mom, for example, when she thinks he's committed suicide and they're all grieving at the, at the funeral home and at her house afterwards. You know, she's inconsolable on her bed. I think she probably has the guilt because she's the one that made him take those 30 years. Yeah. So she believes that, you know, because he couldn't carry them, that she's part of that. Um, Maybe another reason also is that Naaman is like 13 or 14 so he doesn't yeah. have the wherewithal to make his own decisions at this point yet he still lives with his mom in that house mm-hmm. um D'Angelo is a grown man if he wanted to do this flip I guess he could mm-hmm. um but Naaman is still in a really impressionable phase and it's a shame to see it like yeah. he is really on the brink of getting out of the game yeah that's really that's totally true So those are women as corruptors. The final category that we're talking about is absent women. Yep, there are a few women uh, that are, we know exist, but they're only alluded to. We never see them on screen. Mm -hmm. And those are wives. So let's start with Frank Sabatka's wife. Yes, so uh, it's interesting because even... Like, we meet, for example, Nikki's mom at one point. Like, there are... I I feel like it is significant when women aren't on the screen because even if, like, for example, Bunny Colvin's wife is just kind of, like, propped in there a little bit. Yeah, even Presbelewski's wife we meet briefly. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think for an entire season of which Frank Sabatka is the protagonist, it's kind of odd that we never see his wife we never see inside his home mm-hmm. um we i believe there's other children other than just ziggy i don't know um but anyway we we don't see anything of frank's domestic domestic life yes and i do you think that that's to really drive home you know this this culture of men on the docks or like what what do you think it means that we never meet his wife well yeah I was gonna say something similar is that he's very married to his work 
Mm, and interesting yeah he wants to do all of his most good for the union but not for his family and we know that he hasn't done right by his um his wife and children i mean he tries to do his best by nick i guess but not by his most close family Mm -hmm. and it's funny because when ziggy does ultimately go to jail Frank does seem very upset and very sad, but we don't necessarily see him being a super involved father up until that point. No, and there's a really interesting conversation. It's after Ziggy lights the $100 bill on fire, Mm -hmm. and he walks down the street with Frank, and I think they have a telling conversation. And so they've just seen Ziggy light the $100 bill on fire, and Frank Sabak is mad, and and says, why Why would you do such a thing in front of all these working stiffs? And then Ziggy is like, well, you know, I'm not getting the hours and kind of alludes to the fact that he's in the game. Mm-hmm. And then Frank says, well, maybe I should have listened to your mother because she's the one always talking about you should do the community college like your brother. Right. And that brother, we never see him either. Right. So I think maybe their absence represents life outside of the dock game Mm -hmm. outside Mm -hmm. the stevedore game um that neither frank nor ziggy seem to get out of either because they're married to the union or because they're just married to the game absolutely and the other really absent wife figure is rawls's wife yep we know that rawls is married there are several really tight shots of his hands where we know he has a wedding ring on Mm mm-hmm but we never see his wife. He doesn't really talk about his wife. And there's been a lot of discussion online about Rawls maybe being closeted gay mm-hmm. um, because there's one scene where we see him in a gay bar and The Wire never addresses it again. Yep, it's an unsolved mystery of The Wire. So the reason I think these absent wives are so glaring are because there are a couple of wives that are very domineering. Mm-hmm. And aside from the fact that we see absolutely everybody's wife, there are a couple that we see a lot of and they exert a lot of influence. So uh, Cedric Daniel's wife. Yes. And Kima's wife. And Kima's wife. They both, well, I mean, both of them are hesitant to even take the case in season two because of the wedge that season one's goings on had driven in both of their marriages. Yeah, there's a funny scene where Kima and Daniel say, well, I'll tell your wife if you'll tell mine. Yeah, and then the great scene that follows that is, and The Wire has a couple of these really great sort of musical scenes where it's just music playing and and it's almost like a, like a, a circular shot in a way, but anyway, we can see uh Rawls or sorry not Rawls Daniels and his wife eating a very angry quiet aggressively cut dinner yeah and Kima and her wife eating in the same manner at a different table yeah it's very tense uh and yeah so I think you know when we see those kind of wives it's obvious that when they're missing from the scene it means something yeah yeah so that's uh women in the wire And we would be interested to know what you think about uh, either women that are corrupting or women that are saving or even especially absent women. Yeah. Uh, You can find us online at Rewired Podcast on Twitter. 
or you can email us podcast.rewired at gmail.com and we are loving your emails thank you so much we also got a few more emails last week about uh, restaurants and the significance of carryouts so that mm-hmm. was a great email to read thank you uh, and yeah keep in touch and keep in, in touch because next week we're going to be talking about something very current, which is fake news fake and news. what was up with season five. Exactly. So see you. Oh, sorry. I should talk about how we make this podcast. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this podcast is made, edited, produced, written, all of that by Bailey Reed and Kelly Reed. And we do it all using the Opinion app. So shout out to Opinion. And thanks to Flo Florg for the theme music. You can catch that on SoundCloud. Okay, we'll see you next week. Way down in the hole.